Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where you'll receive a boost of inspiration, practical advice, and tools to maximize your success and personal happiness. And that's not all. You'll also get plenty of guidance on how you can use your gifts, talents, and compassion to contribute towards making the world a better place. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter for a preview of what's in store and to also receive a free ebook. To sign up, simply visit www.thedreamcatch.com. Now it's my pleasure to introduce you to the host of the Dreamcatcher podcast, Celine Chinoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dreamcatcher podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. Humans have been telling stories for tens of thousands of years. That's because our brains are hardwired to engage with narratives we read and hear. That makes storytelling extremely effective when used with purpose and direction. It can inspire people to want to change their lives, but only if it connects with them emotionally. To tell us more about how to tell compelling stories, I invited David Bossert. David Bossert is an award-winning artist, filmmaker, and author. He was a longtime animator at Disney who worked on iconic films such as The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, and The Nightmare Before Christmas. He's also written several books such as Remembering Roy E. Disney, Dolly and Disney Destino, and Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, The Search for Lost Cartoons. David is going to share his creative process and what he learned about the key elements of storytelling while working for Disney, one of the most renowned storytelling companies. He also talks about the power of stories to evoke emotion and how to apply it in our own projects. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Hello, David. How are you doing today? Very well. It's uh, it's wonderful to be here and uh, nice to be on the uh, Dreamcatcher podcast. Yeah, I mean, we're so excited to have you on. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to be here to share your vast knowledge with all of us. And I have to start by saying that I am a huge Disney fan. Um, like so many other millennials, I grew up watching all the classics. Um, so I'm super excited to know more, more about how you played a part in creating the magic and how it added to your own experience and skill set. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, I uh, uh, worked at the Walt Disney Animation Studios for uh, just over 32 years. And, wow. uh, you know, I, I started out as in an entry level position as what's known as an in-betweener. Uh, and then I, I quickly became uh, a special effects animator, uh, uh, a supervising animator, a visual effects supervisor, artistic coordinator. And then I eventually became a producer, creative director uh, and uh, uh, headed up a special projects group uh, at, at the studio and did work all over uh, the company uh, and, and consequently all over the world. That's amazing. So you're absolutely prolific uh, in terms of your in terms of the scope of the work that you've done. Yeah, I, you know, I was in a very interesting position when I headed up the special projects group because I had an opportunity to work with partners and I had I had a wonderful team of people that I worked with and mm -hmm. and we we got to work with uh partners uh, across the company in all these different divisions including parks and resorts and imagineering and uh music and uh you know consumer products and gaming and publishing and just you know a, a across the board. So it really gave me an interesting uh, uh, skill set uh, in dealing with all these diff different business units. Nice. I actually spoke with the former uh, VP of Imagineering, Joe Garlington. Did you uh -huh. ever work I with him? No, I, 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 the name doesn't ring a bell for me. Okay. Okay, great. I was just curious because yeah, <laughs> yeah. I had a great conversation with him. Too. All right, David. So let's, let's dive in. 
I, as you mentioned, you have done a bunch of things at the Disney company. I mean, you're you're an animator, you're a writer, you're a producer, and a filmmaker. So uh, tell us what your creative process is like. How would you describe it? Well, I mean, you know, I think everybody works differently. Uh, everybody uh, has their own way of approaching things. My process mm-hmm. is one of really total immersion um, uh, into whatever project I'm working on. And, and, and I have to say, I work best when I have multiple projects going at any given time because I can really focus in on one project and work on that to a point and maybe put it aside and work on something else. But even though I've put that other project aside, it's sort of still percolating in the back of my mind. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm working on it almost subconsciously. Uh, and, uh, and so I get to, I get to go from one project to another project and back again uh, as I'm uh, working. And, and that, just works for me. Uh, you know, I, I often tell people that uh, it, it's a constant creative thought process. And even when I'm sleeping, you know, I, I'll, I'll think about a creative problem as I'm going to sleep. And, and, and in, you know, sure enough, the next morning, I'll, I'll have some sort of solution or at least next step. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, just my, you know, process. And I also, I never accept no. Um, you know, when somebody says, no, we can't do that. I, I just, I have always been conditioned. And I think it's because I worked at the Walt Disney company. I've I know. Been, I was just going to say, because yeah. wasn't Walt Disney like that? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I've always been conditioned that it, you, you never say, no, you can't do that. You, you always think in terms of how can we do that? You know, how, how can we make that happen? Uh, and, and so that's always been my mindset. Um, and, and it's, it's worked well for me. That's, that's great. So you're not multitasking, right? You are, you focus on one task at a time, but you kind of leave it, uh, you put it to the side and you work on a bunch of other things. Yeah. I, I mean, I, when I was heading up that special projects group, I had anywhere from, you know, 15 to 18 projects going at one time. And, yeah, and, and, and so, I was thinking more like five. Or <laughs> <laughs> no, but but you know, having that many projects really was was exciting for me because I could uh, really put a hundred percent into each one as I spent time on each of those projects. And uh, and again, you're constantly thinking and looking at uh, ways of doing things. Uh, if you hit a stopping point or a breaking point uh, that, that feels natural, it's easy to put something aside. I do the same thing with my writing now. Um, oftentimes, I, I have multiple book projects going. I'm doing research on some of the projects. I'm writing on a project. Uh, um, you know, I may put the writing aside on one project, pick up writing on another project. And I find it very stimulating creatively to work that way. Right. And um, I know you work on your own now, but when you were working at Disney, were you kind of brainstorming and problem solving with other people? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I have to say, you know, anything that I worked on at the Walt Disney Company, it was always a team effort. You know, you you had the people you're doing a project for at another division. You had the, them weighing in on what it is they wanted to have done with the particular project that you were involved with. Um, the projects themselves were were big teams. Uh, you know, when we did the World of Color outdoor show, uh, it was a big outdoor projection fountain yeah, show yeah. At, mm-hmm. at California Adventure. Um, yeah. You know, it was a huge team of people. You had you had a show director. Uh, you had a show producer, uh, you had uh, uh, engineers and computer programmers, you had lighting specialists, you had so so many different disciplines that come together that are able to create that kind of a a project. I mean, I was the the creative director and producer of the animation projections that went on to the water screens uh, in that particular show. But that was a small part of a bigger team of people. 
Okay. So how did you make that transition from working at Disney with all these uh, different professionals to working on your own? Well, you know, it, it, it actually overlapped because I, oh, did it? I, okay. I, yeah, I, I wrote my first book, Remembering Roy E. Disney. Yeah. Uh, I think it was probably three or four years before I, I left the company. And, and I don't like to use the word retired because to me, <laughs> okay. uh, I, I, I feel like I shifted gears and I, I went from one thing to the next, you know, I closed yeah. one yeah, chapter I and I went on to the next chapter. And so I've been writing full time. And, uh, and for me, uh, the difference is, is that I get to pick the projects I want to work on. I get to pick the things that are most interesting to me. And, you know, whereas I think when you're working at a company, there's some projects you get involved with that you are sort of, eh, you know, this isn't that exciting. I'd, I'd rather not really be working on this, but I have to because, you know, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people done. can relate. A lot of people. Yeah. Can and, I, and I think, you know, regardless of what you do for a living, every yeah. one of us who works at a company uh, or had worked at a company had those moments where you're working on a project that you'd rather not be working on. <laughs> and, uh, and and so now, you know, working for myself, I get to really just pick those projects that are, are really are exciting to me and, and the projects I really want to work on. Right, right. David, I mean, you had a pretty sweet gig. You actually worked as an animator during the golden age of uh, animation at Disney in the 90s. Uh, you worked on iconic films like The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, and The Nightmare Before Christmas. I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be, um, you know, in the midst of all that excitement and the innovative ideas that it must have been floating around. So tell us, what was that experience like? Well, you know, the one thing I would say is that when you're in the thick of it, you're just working on a movie. You don't know if it's going to be a hit, a classic. You don't know if it's that going to resonate with true. the audience. And, and you're more focused on hitting deadlines, you know, because, you know, they decide, hey, that movie's releasing, uh, you know, in November of this particular year. And you've got to get that done because they've locked in their release date to the theaters. And so, um, you know, I think when you're in the middle of it, uh, you, you, you know, sometimes you get a sense, wow, this is a really good movie or, you know, I hope this does well because I really like the film, but you, you really don't know. And you're so focused on doing your particular discipline for that movie. And you're working with hundreds of artists that are, you know, being led by a, a, a directing team or a director uh, and a producer. And, and so, you know, for me, uh, you know, you hope it's going to be a hit movie, but you're focused on getting the movie finished. And the one thing that I learned is that, you know, you never finish these films. You know, they're works of art. You can tinker with things in a movie until doomsday, uh, you know, and uh, and we used to have a saying that we never finished the film. We just released it, you know, because you had to put a movie out there. And and oftentimes with with Disney animated films, Five or 10 years later, they'll do an anniversary release or they used to do an anniversary release right. on a DVD. And yeah. oftentimes they, I would remember add, that. Yeah. they would add a sequence back in that was cut when the movie was first released. I remember that. Yes. You know, for whatever reason, um, yeah. uh, I think like on Pocahontas, there was a song called If I Never Knew You. Uh, that was this wonderful love song uh, between John Smith and Pocahontas mm -hmm. and, and the director, uh, one of the directors, Mike Gabriel loved that song. And, and they ultimately cut it out because when they did some test screenings, the kids in the audience were getting fidgety during the love song. And so they wound oh. up taking it out, but for the 10 year yes. anniversary, we actually finished it and they put it back into the film for the, for an anniversary DVD release. So, I mean, part of that is the marketing thing to get people to buy the new DVD because it has a new sequence and song put back into mm -hmm. the film. But the other aspect of it is that the, the filmmaker, the director 
really wanted that in the movie and he got his chance to put it back in. I see. I see. Um, so you were really focused on the work uh, as opposed to how the movie would be received. Uh, a- absolutely. I mean, because that's out of your control. You but know? I'm sure you, you had you had some, I don't know, some intuitive feeling that you're, you're working on something magnificent, something that's just I, I, I larger than that, life. Yeah. But I, 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 you know, again, I have to sit there and say, like when the Lion King was in development at Disney animation, there there was skepticism as to whether that was going to be a good movie. There was a lot of artists who didn't want to work on the Lion King. They wanted to bypass it and go on to early development of Pocahontas, which okay. was the movie that came out after it. After and, that, yeah. Uh, and, and there was a lot of early story problems, and there was change out of of directors, and uh, you know there there was a lot of issues with that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ultimately, it gets released and becomes one of the biggest hits of all time. Yeah, even the, you know? the the movie that was made recently, that also yeah. broke all box uh, yeah, office the records. John, the, the John Favreau version. Yeah, correct. Uh, yeah, John Favreau. Yeah. And, uh, you know, look, you, you just don't know. Uh, yeah. You, you know, you think the film is going to be great or early on it's got a lot of problems. So you're kind of, you know, skeptical. And, mm-hmm. you know, animators and artists are wanting to work on films that they think are going to be a sure thing or are going to be a hit because clearly nobody wants to spend two or three years working on a film that goes out and is a dud. Uh, at the box office or is forgotten. Um, and we we were fortunate in the 90s that we worked on so many films that really, you know, resonated with audiences. Mm-hmm. I think later on, though, kind of took a downturn. And that's why they kind of switched to more like Pixar yeah, Pixar but movies, you, know, right? you yeah. know something. I, I think though that with you, Tarzan uh, and uh, the yeah. Emperor's New Groove, which I personally love, but I, yeah. I, I don't know for some reason it wasn't successful. Well, you know something though. Again, I think that you have to look at uh, anything is cyclical, um, and I, I I could look at the entire timeline of Disney animation from Snow White to, uh, you know, uh, the films they put out this year, like in can this past year in Canto or Ryan, the last dragon, which did really well. And Canto- yeah, I, yeah. I, I could look at the entire timeline yeah. and plot out a, a, a cycle where, you know, you have a period of hit films and you have a period of films that aren't really that well received at the box office. It's it's a cycle that goes through uh, just like there's business cycles, just like there's economic cycles. Uh, there's there's cycles at Disney animation like there are anywhere else. And there's peaks and valleys. Hmm, that's an interesting observation. I know that in the 40s or the 50s, Dumbo, um, and there was another movie that that really didn't do well at the box office. But they say that's because of World War, the World War, well, War they lost the European audience. Yeah, right? I mean, when, when you look at, uh, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was off the charts. Uh, yeah, it was off the uh, charts. Of a success yeah. because mm-hmm. it was the first animated feature film that, yeah. you know, played in theaters and really, you know, tugged at people's uh, heartstrings. Yeah. Um, I think that when you look at uh, Pinocchio, which is a masterpiece in my mind, artistically, it didn't Mm -hmm. do as well at the box office, but part of that's attributed to the fact that it it was released during the beginning of world war two. And so they started losing box office revenue in Europe as the war spread. Uh, and so the same can be said about Fantasia, uh, Bambi and Dumbo from that time period, because the war was raging by the time those films were released. Uh, uh, and, you know, again, if you lose one third of your box office revenue, uh, you know, that's significant. And, it, and it, you know, and those films shouldn't be judged based on how they were received initially uh, because of those factors. So uh, but, you know, again, you go through these periods where uh, there 
the, you know, the, the 1940s because of World War II, there wasn't as much feature production. But then at the end of the 1940s, you had Alice in Wonderland. 1950, you had Cinderella. Cinderella. Yeah. Uh, and then you had Sleeping Peter Beauty. Pan. You had Peter Pan and uh, Lady in the Tramp and then yeah. Sleeping Beauty. Okay. Uh, you're the Disney historian here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 you, you have to look at what's going on in the world yes, and also what's going difference. on in the company as well, you know, yeah. because, yeah. because there was, you know, sort of a, a softness in animation uh, mm-hmm. after Walt Disney passed away, you know, yes. so, you know, the last the last feature film he was actually hands-on involved with really was um jungle book uh and oh that was the last one okay that that he was you know personally involved with and then Uh after that you know you had these other films that came out sword in the stone and things like that that didn't Mm -hmm. quite do as well you know they were just softer at the box office Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and did you work closely with uh, roy disney I, I, mean, I, I, I did know Roy very well and, okay. uh, and he was executive producer on a number of projects I was involved mm-hmm. with, uh, including, um, uh, Fantasia 2000 and Destino, uh, mm-hmm. the short film. Uh, so I, I really had the pleasure of knowing him and, and getting to work with him and travel with him a little bit. That's wonderful. Uh, over, over about a 20 year period. So. And uh, did he share a lot of stories with you about Walt Disney, the man? Himself? Yeah, he did. Uh, you know, he yeah. did. And, and, and I, I asked him a lot of, of, of questions, uh, you know, especially when we were traveling, we had time to just sit, you know, and, uh, and chat. Um, uh, he, he was, uh, a very down to earth individual, uh, and, uh, incredibly nice and generous, I have to say. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and Walt Disney, I mean, he was a prolific storyteller and he was able to really, really move people, uh, with, his, with the storytelling that he did. And I know you've written a lot about the secret sauce of Disney. Um, yeah. so can you tell us what what that is and what that constitutes? Well, I I think for me the classic Disney animated films are are timeless and they transcend generationally. You know, if you watch Bambi today, it resonates today as much as it did when it first came out in the early 1940s. Um and and I think that you know these films they speak to hope. Uh, that there's a better tomorrow uh, that will get through whatever difficulties and obstacles, uh, you know, that we we encounter and, and essentially uh, live happily ever after. You know, I mean, that's that's to me kind of, you know, where those films fall. And so uh, I, I think, you know, the key is, is that they're timeless and, and transcend generations. Yeah, I agree. And do you think it's also because um, a lot of them uh, followed the narrative of the hero's journey? I mean, we see that in almost all of them, especially yeah, the classics. I mean, I, you know, of course. I, I mean, when you look at, at, you know, what the elements of great storytelling are, you know, there, there's, you know, the characters, the setting, the plot, the conflict yes. and the resolution, you know, uh, you know, for the Disney animated films, it's about creating endearing characters, mm-hmm. both heroes and yeah. villains, both heroes and villains, you know? Yeah. Cause some of the villains of, are, are, are likable. Like yeah, I, they're absolutely I, I really likeable. like Hades from Hercules. Sure. I mean, he's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, that that is, you know, uh, part, you know, these characters are part of a compelling story. They're set in uh, a world that you, you know, the audience want to spend time in and also visit again, you know, because that's one of the things about the classic Disney animated films is, is that it's not just watching it once it's, it's watching it multiple times. It's, it's going back and revisiting the film exactly. periodically. Yeah. And all of us, all of us do it. All of us who love movies, you know, go back and watch favorite films again and again over, over years uh, uh, to refresh our memories and, 
you get a different layer of understanding as you get more life experience. Like there are some pretty deep themes in some of these movies, you know, which kids would not be able to pick up on. Absolutely. And I think I think that's also part of the success uh, of a lot of the Disney animated films is that they play to different age groups and different at different levels. You know, there's material in these films that hit adults that go over the heads of kids. And there's equally amounts of material that hits the kids uh, and, of course, resonates with the adults. Uh, And a lot of these films you know, uh, people have watched them when they were growing up and now they're sharing them with their own children. Uh, and, and I think that's, again, you know, something that's really important uh, with these types of films is that they do transcend generations. Right. And what is your opinion about the live action movies that they have recently started making? You know, they've done Beauty and the Beast. They've done Aladdin, The Lion King, as we just talked about. Cinderella. Uh, the, junk, the Cinderella. What are, you, what are your thoughts about this? Because they have <laughs> embellished the stories. Um, they have made them more um, contemporary. Uh, so what are your thoughts on those movies? You know, look, I, I think that I I've seen a lot of them. Uh, and, and I, I know that there's been backlash from fans that say, you know, why are they doing this? Why don't they do original stuff and this and that, but I, I have a different view on it. I, I sit there and say, these are great stories that the company has told in one medium and they're, uh, telling them in another. And, and when you look at a film like Lion King, you can watch the original animated film. You could go to Broadway or to a theater anywhere in the world, really, and see the Lion King on stage. It's a different interpretation, but it's a beautiful interpretation uh, that I've enjoyed very much. Uh, you could go and watch John Favreau's version of The Lion King, which is, you know, really uh, maintain the integrity of the original anime. It didn't change a lot. It, he didn't change a no. lot in terms of the no, storyline. But it's a different if it's a different uh, take on on the story visually. And so what what the company's doing is it's giving the audience choice. You know, it's giving them a choice to see these great stories in different ways. And and so for me, that that's a choice you as the audience member makes. If if you're a diehard fan of the animated film and don't want to go see the 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 quote live action, which was really a very realistic CG version, obviously, uh, if you don't want to see that, then you have a choice of not going to the theater to see it. But but clearly the fans of The Lion King wanted to see it because it was a huge success at the box office and people want to see it live on a Broadway stage because that's been running for more than 20 years. In fact, I heard a great statistic that um, the Lion King Broadway show and its traveling companies all over the world has grossed more than all the Star Wars movies put together. No way. Yes. Yes way. Because it's been running for more than 20 years. Star Wars? No, no. Yeah, I, I'm talking. The Lion King has been running yeah. for for more than 20 years on on wow. live stages all over the world, and it's grossed more than all the Star Wars movies put together. Yeah, yeah. it's mind that it's mind boggling. It's mind boggling. I mean, it, yeah, it's made billions and billions of dollars, and so I think that you know again uh the the company is putting out these stories in different ways to give the audience choices and choices to see the same story in different ways because they enjoy those stories and and that's the magic of it you know and by the way if people don't want to see something they'll let the company know through the box office 
or right social media or social, or social media because i yeah, know that but, a lot yeah. of people are not happy with the casting choice for the little mermaid i don't want to get too much into it because it's a bit controversial mm-hmm. uh, but who they chose as a little mermaid um because of the way she looks um so i don't know if you if you're familiar with that the you know i i i don't i don't normally pay too much attention to that kind of controversy because yeah. you know these are these these are people that are armchair quarterbacking uh mm-hmm. decisions and uh, and I'm going to wait until the movie comes out and I'm going to judge the movie not based on how somebody looks but based on how they perform the role and that's really right. what 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 it what we all should be doing is we should be looking at things through that lens. I, you know, I let, agree. Yeah, but is let, that in an in integrity with the story though? I mean, I you know that's yeah, but, that's what but, they're questioning. You know, again, I I'm not going to I'm not going to pass judgment on it until I yeah. see the finished product. You know, all of these people are second guessing. You know, they're picking so and so. Why are they picking that person? You know, they may not like that person for whatever reason. Uh, I I want to wait until I see the film on the big screen and I'll walk out of the theater and I'll say, well, that worked really well. Or I'm going to say, hmm, I don't know if that was a good choice. You know, I mean, I didn't particularly uh, care for uh, Will Smith as the genie in Aladdin. Yeah, I think he had big shoes to fill. Right. Absolutely. But, you know, in in my mind, I thought I thought the actor who played the genie in the original Broadway production of Aladdin would have been a much better choice. But he didn't have as big a name. Yeah, that's true. You know, and 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 so they're making those decisions based on who's going to, you know, even with Emma Watson. Yeah. Yeah. Emma Watson uh, for Beauty and the Beast. Right. Yeah, I, I thought they could have found someone who looked more like but, Mel. But yeah, you know. but they're they're making choices for marketing reasons. I yeah, and, I I, you know, I picked up on that. Yeah, as a draw to bring people into the theaters, they they want to have a big name attached to it or whatever. But you know, the those are the things that you know they have to make those decisions. They're the ones that are making the film, uh, and uh, ultimately that will get released to theaters and it'll be the audience who will tell the filmmakers whether they were successful or not. Okay. So let's get back to what it was like working at Disney. Um, I'm curious, David, um, was the fact that there was a change in leadership, um, did it impact the way all of you worked and just the general atmosphere of the company? Because I know when you first started, uh, Michael Eisner, was the CEO? Uh, no, and, actually, actually, when I first started, Ron Miller was the CEO. It was before oh, was he? Oh my God! Wells came in. That was yeah. yeah. Oh, so, right. so you've yeah. been through three. Oh years. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and yeah. I think that you know, uh, I I think when there's a major leadership change out, there, yeah. there's certainly there's certainly a shakeup that happens, uh, and you always hope that it's going to be for the positive. I mm-hmm. think that um, I think that when Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came into the company and brought in people like Jeffrey Katzenberg and others, um, there was there was sort of this positive reawakening, if you will, uh, of uh, of the company in general, and certainly of uh, Disney Animation, and uh, and that was a very positive thing. I I think though that people are often um, uh, afraid uh, of change uh, because uh, you're you're sort of you know upending uh, uh, what what the norm had been and you're mm-hmm. making changes and and certainly there was I think there was some fear uh, and uh, uneasiness uh, about the management changeover but ultimately when you look back you you sit there I mean that management change out was precipitated by uh, Roy Disney. And he was the one that engineered it uh, with his business partner, Stanley Gold, and brought in Michael Eisner and Frank Wells. And, and if that hadn't have happened, we might be looking at a very, very different Walt Disney company today. Uh, and so, you know, I, I sit there and, and embrace change because I've always 
want to change because it, change is exciting. Uh, there's always something new to learn. There's always some new thing you can do. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I mean, that's a great attitude to have. So David, let's get into storytelling specifically. I would love to know, what what do you think are the elements of a great story? Well, I, you know, I, I, I think I touched on it. Uh, to me, it's the characters. It's the setting. It's the plot line of the story. Mm-hmm. What the conflict is and the resolution. Okay. You know, the, those to me are really the five basics uh, uh, of storytelling. And, you know, uh, again, it, it's about creating these endearing characters uh, and, and putting them in a compelling story in a world that, you know, in, in a world that could be a fantastic new environment that, that the audience has never experienced before. Um those are those are the real keys to it, I think. Uh, and you know, today, when I see animated films coming out, uh, there's a lot of humanoid characters, a lot of human characters. Uh, so much so that you wonder why they're even doing it animated. You know, you you wonder with these human characters, why why wouldn't they just do it live action? Could um, so- you give an example of? You know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, some of these films like uh, Ryan, the last dragon or Encanto, uh, you know, have a lot of uh, human characters in them. Uh, and there's also some fantastic, you know, creatures and things like that. But for the most part, they're human characters. And with the technology today and the way they're doing, you know, these Marvel superhero movies and things like that, you can pretty much do anything you want. Um, so I, I sit there and, and would say, like, I would look at a film like uh, the Mitchells versus the machines, which came out not from Disney, but from Sony uh, as a, an animated film that was cartoony. It had elements of uh, computer animation. It had hand-drawn animation and design elements that, you know, you wouldn't have seen in a live action film. So I, I sit there and look at the, the Mitchells versus the machines as, okay, that's a great animated film that I really enjoyed. Uh, but then I look at a film like Ryan, the last dragon. And I think to myself, well, you could have made that as a live action movie and maybe Disney will make it as a live action movie since they're doing all their other animated films as live action. So do you think so, they could have done that? As, um, absolutely. As a live, as a live action film. Absolutely. Yeah. Without question. You know, the whole thing with the dragon, yeah. you know, spinning up in the air. I, I mean, there was a, there was a similar thing uh, in uh, uh, Shang-Chi and the 10 rings, uh, a Mar- the Marvel film, which was a live action film. There was a whole yes. thing with a dragon escaping at the, uh, you know, out of a, a cave. I mean, you know, that's all CG animation. I, I honestly, you know, uh, Ryan, the last dragon could have been a live action film, uh, with, with CG enhancements. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's um, how I, I view it. I guess you would be able to notice all those nuances, um, because of all yeah. the experience you've had. Yeah. But that's really, you know, the basics of a great story are really going to be the characters and, uh, you know, the storyline and the um, uh, environment that you put it all in. I mean, that's that's really what it's going to be. Yeah. And I've noticed that um, the story, the type of stories that Disney movies tell, it's kind of evolved as society has evolved. It's no more all just romance. Right. Like, for instance, with Frozen, it was like the love between two sisters. Um, And, you know, of course, women empowerment. I mean, that's become a huge theme. Uh, I think that started in the 90s itself because you started having very strong women characters. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that, on how the stories have evolved with the times? Well, I, I often think that you you have to be able to uh, evolve uh, uh, in your storytelling uh, and uh, certainly you know that that evolution could be a bumpy road uh, there there's certainly 
stories that are coming out that uh, they're experimenting with, they're they're wanting to try out, they're pushing the boundaries on, and and they need to do that. And and I think that you know having uh, diverse characters uh, uh, in diverse settings, um, uh, touching on things that are important to audiences today. Uh, you have to, you have to evolve and, uh, keep on top of those types of things. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, I, to me, it's a fine line because you don't want to be forcing, um, uh, you know, uh, messages into films. Uh, It it really should be a very organic thing in in my mind. Yeah, I agree. I noticed that, especially in the movies in the 90s, like there were very standard archetypes. You know, you had the the hero, the heroine, you had the sidekick, the villain, uh, the jester. Um, And that's also changed. Like they've kind of, have someone who don't really fit those those archetypes who seem kind of eccentric and who don't yeah. kind of fit the mold sure. um so- and, and i think I, I think part of that is you you, you don't want to be formulaic uh, so you want to try so they've and change that in. too. Yeah. You want to try and break out of these molds, uh, and try new things and try different types of storytelling. Uh, I, I think you have to do that because if, if it becomes, if, if you fall into that rut of, of formulaic, uh, storylines, uh, it gets old after a while. Uh, and your audience will know, you know, your audience is going to get tired of it at some point. Uh, so you do have to be able to uh, be conscious of those things. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if Walt Disney was still alive, like how would he do things? I'm sure that's crossed your mind too, right? Like how would he respond well, I, to all the technology and the... Listen, I mean, you know, there's always there's always that question. What would Walt have done? What would Walt have done? Yes. Yeah. And and anytime I've heard that, I would have I I would always respond. Walt would not repeat himself. He would do something different. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and, and that was that was something he was well known for was he didn't want to repeat himself. He didn't want to keep doing the same thing. And uh, and I think that's really important. I I don't think that you can keep uh, just uh, regurgitating the same, you know, storylines, the same type of things. So. And how involved were you in the um, theme park development uh, of the Disney? Well, I, I mean, the only involvement I had on the theme parks was on specific attractions that were new and being designed and we were part of, you know, whether okay. it was the Dwarf dwarf Mine Coaster or the World of Color or Paris Dreams, you know, a lot of a lot of the outdoor projection shows I was involved with. Um and so, you know, again, you're constantly trying to do something different that the audience hasn't seen before. And even even with the animation projections we did in World of Color, uh, we wanted to present, you know, familiar uh, iconic scenes from animated films, but in a different way. Uh, you know, and a good example of that is, uh, in Bambi, there's, there's a sequence with, uh, Thumper and Bambi on the ice. Uh, and it's a series of, uh, of short scenes strung together, lots of cuts. Uh, and we wanted to present that differently and actually strung together some of the original animation, but did bridge animation between some of the scenes to create it as one big scene of Bambi and Thumper Thumper on the ice. So it was something the audience was familiar with, but it was being presented in a way they hadn't seen it before. And, and and I think that's really important uh, to do whenever you're working on a project that is going to repurpose material from, you know, one medium to another. Okay. So create a unique spin on it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, some people would have just taken the animation clips and thrown them up on the water screens, but but taking that extra step of presenting it differently than what they were used to seeing in a film, uh, I think makes that, that particular show and that particular moment more exciting. Yeah. They did that for Fantasmic too. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did a little work on, on Phantasmic. I with, love that show. Uh, with, with, I love with, that show. With restoration of some of the yeah. animation that went, with, that was in that show. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a spectacular show. Um, so, uh, David, you also written a bunch of books, um, and I'm just going to name a couple of them here. You've actually written, um, a book, a biography of Roy Disney. You've written a book about Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and the lifelong friendship and collaboration of Salvador Dali and Walt Disney. Uh, you've written a book about that too. Um, so what was your research process like? And were there any common themes that you discovered uh, during your research? Well, I, I mean, any book that I, I work on, uh, I do an extensive amount of research as much as I possibly can. Uh, and uh, I'm pretty good about digging out uh, material that people haven't seen before. And, and I again, I think it's exciting for the audience uh, to be able to see, even in a book, something that they haven't seen before or read something they hadn't known before. And so, you know, for me, each of these stories is unique and each in a sense highlights some sort of life lesson. You know, I think, you know, for example, my book on Roy Disney was written to give those that didn't know him a sense of who he was as a man. Uh, and, and, you know, the fact that, you know, he had the last name Disney, the fact that, you know, he was, you know, incredibly wealthy, uh, you know, grew up with privilege really, uh, to some degree, but was grounded, uh, was a, was a, uh, uh, almost a regular person, if you will. And one of the things I learned from being around him was he treated everyone the same. It didn't matter if it was a security host uh, in one of the buildings or the president of the United States or royalty. Uh, he treated everybody the same uh, and he was he was decent and respectful uh, and a good person. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I would sit there and, and say, like, if you look at my Oswald, the lucky rabbit book, um, it's interesting uh, that you chose Oswald. I mean, for everyone who doesn't know, Oswald is pretty much the predecessor of, uh, Mickey Mouse, right? I mean, he was, am I, yeah, am I he, correct? He, yeah. He predates Mickey Mouse. And, and, and if it wasn't for Oswald, there probably wouldn't be a Mickey Mouse. And, Correct. Cause they stole and, Oswald, right? He, yeah. Well, they didn't steal him. I mean, everybody thinks that, uh, that Walt, uh, you know, uh, lost Oswald because somebody stole it. Walt never owned Oswald, the lucky rabbit, uh, his, the producer of the Oswald, the lucky rabbit, uh, cartoons, was the guy that owned the rights to Oswald. Walt didn't own the rights. And That's so right. he he lost the contract to do the Oswald cartoons. And because of that, he vowed he was never, you know, he would always own his own characters. He was never going to not own his characters. So because he lost the contract to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, he and Ub Iwerks developed Mickey Mouse and created the first three Mickey Mouse cartoons. And the rest is history after that. And didn't the wife the suggest yes. the name? I, I originally yes. wanted to name the mouse Mortimer, right? Yeah. Mortimer, Mortimer Mouse. And, and Mortimer it was Mouse. Lillian, uh, Walt's yeah. wife, who who suggested Mickey. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, he. He, you know, he he loses the character uh, and uh, because he didn't own it and he vowed going forward, he would always own his characters. And that led to the creation of Mickey Mouse and really the shaping of a family entertainment empire. You know, so I, I think, you know, there's there's valuable lessons in each of those uh, Dolly and Disney Destino. Yeah. I, tell us about that, because I didn't even know they worked together. Dolly and Disney uh, uh, Destino is really about the enduring friendship of these two great 20th century artists and a collaboration that was ultimately completed 60 years after it was started. And so, you know, for me, 
you know, again, that story had not been told in its entirety. And I, I was fortunate enough to be the person to, to tell that story. And, uh, you know, and again, I, you know, for each one of my books, I, I, I've chosen it because it's a story that, that hasn't yet been fully told. And I'm interested in telling those kinds of stories. So, you know, if there's any common theme in my books, it's, it's that of discovery, I guess, you know, um, and, uh, and, and that's what excites me is that I don't want to, you know, how many books on Bambi can you have? How many books on Sleeping Beauty or, or Snow White and the Seven Dwarves can you have? I, I, I mean, they've been written about at nauseum, uh, and I just feel like I want to pick topics on things that people haven't heard about and that might be of interest of, to them. Right. But I would imagine that your readership would be very niche or niche um, because they would have to be familiar with these, with these characters and these people, you know, well, I, you know, I think a lot, I, I think a lot of what I've written about, you know, my, I, I wrote a book, uh, Kem Weber, uh, mid-century furniture design. Yes. Yes. Videos. I mean, that's really about the mid-century uh, design period. Uh, it's about the specific 22 pieces of furniture that Cam Weber designed uh, for the various disciplines within Disney animation. And, and what was uh, significant about it? Well, the the significance was it was form and function. Uh, he designed these desks for different disciplines within the animation process. So an animator's desk was different from a layout artist's desk, which was different from a background painter's desk or an ink and painter. Each desk that was designed had input from the artists that were part of that discipline. So you wound up having each desk that was specific to a task that was being done or a discipline within the animation process. And, uh, and so to be able to write that book was really to, to, it was sort of a love letter for me to the furniture because I've been, I'm still working close to 40 years now on a desk that I, I'm sitting at right now, a 1939 Chem Weber animation desk, which is where I write my book. Antique. And yeah, the studio the studio gave it to me when I oh when I that's retired. that's so nice yeah uh, and uh, and this is where I write my books but you know I sit there and 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 I sat and looked at this desk one day and wondered if anybody had documented this and I wanted to actually write that story and interview artists of the different disciplines that worked on these different desks mm -hmm. so that it was you know, in black and white, it, there was a record of it because 50 years from now, you know, these are going to be collector's items that nobody's really working on anymore. And they're going to wonder, you know, why was there a metal stripper over here on, on the desk? And, you know, why was it designed this way? And, you know, to be able to document that, I think is, is an important thing. And some people might say, Oh, that's a niche topic. And I had somebody say that about the book, but guess what? The book won six, it went out and won six awards and uh, it's a consistent seller because it's not just about people doing animation. It's people who are interested in mid-century design. It's, Got it. it's people interested in history. You yes. know, there, there's a wider audience out there than what people would sort of sit there and think right off the bat. You know, if you look at Dolly and Disney, it's of interest to people who like Salvador Dolly's artwork. It's of interest to people who like Disney and Disney history. And, you know, so, you know, and art. one of the, yeah, each one of these topics yeah. may on the mm -hmm. surface feel like there's a niche audience to it, but there's actually a broader audience underneath. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. So uh, just one last question before before we end our conversation. Uh, David, do you have any uh, advice for, for our listeners who are looking for inspiration, who want to just get a jump start on their creative process? Well, you know, look, to me, 
inspiration is all around us every day. I'm inspired all the time. I'm inspired when I read something interesting. I'm inspired when I go to a museum uh, or a concert. Uh, I think, uh, you know, you have to open yourself up to the world out there. Uh, and, and again, most people are conditioned to say no. Uh, and close themselves off to things. Uh, every time I have thought about doing something, I follow through on it. You know, I, 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 I do a personal retreat every year for a week or two uh, up in Maine, uh, northern part of Maine and in the northeast of the United States. And, um, and I sit by myself out in nature you know, looking out at the water uh, with a notebook. And I just, I, I remember one summer, probably 10 years ago, I sat uh, and, and I wrote out a list of books I'd like to write. Well, I've crossed off, you know, half the books on that list because I've written them. Uh, and, you know, we all know people that go, someday I'm gonna, or I wish I could, or you know, some, something along those lines, they, they, you know, you always hear people say, Oh, someday I'm going to go visit, you know, Greece, or someday I'm going to go do this, or someday I'll learn how to paint. Well, instead of waiting for someday, just do it, you know? And, and that's what I do. Uh, if I decide, Oh, I I'd like to write a book on that topic. I go and write the book, uh, because that's the book I want to read. Uh, and you know, uh, again, I, I would say people are conditioned to say, no, you can't do that. Or how, you know, I, I don't think I could do that. They're distracted you know, too. Yeah. yeah. You, you have to go figure it out. Yeah. You know, you have, you have to decide what you want to do. We're all in control of our own lives. We can decide whether we want to do something or we don't want to do something. We are the ones that can decide someday I'll go do that. Or we can say, I'm going to do that in three months. I'm going to make the reservations and I'm going to go visit that place. Or we can say, I'm going to learn how to paint and we put our mind to it and we do it. We're the only ones. No one can control us. We, we control ourselves and we determine whether we want to do something and do it or whether we just wish we could do it. And, and that's, and that's really the, the bottom line for anybody out there. If you want to put your mind to doing something, go do it. Um, you know, I've, I've had people tell me, no, that's not going to work. And I've gone and done it myself. You know, with my Dolly and Disney book, I want to just give your audience a little example here. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. When, when I was writing the Dolly and Disney Destino book, I had it in the back of my mind. I wanted people to see the short film. Destino is a, a, a six minute short. Uh, and I wanted people to see it. And as I was writing the book, I kept thinking to myself, why can't we put the short movie in a book? so that people can have the full story, but they can also watch the movie in a book. And I went and built a prototype because I thought to myself, I want to put the movie in a book. The technology exists, but nobody's actually applied that technology to putting it in a book. So I went and built a prototype with uh, somebody that I cold called over at uh, the Imagineering division. And I talked to somebody who was a display expert and we mocked up a prototype, which I still have here uh, in my office. We mocked up a prototype and then I shot uh, a little one minute video on my iPhone where I held the book up and said, I want to do a new book where we put the movie in the book and I opened the cover of the book and I pressed the button and the movie started playing on a screen. And I sent that one minute video off to the publishing uh, group and said, I think we should put the movie in a book. We could do it. Here's, here's an example. And like five minutes later, Oh my God, we have to do this. Wow. It took, it, it took two years to put the manufacturing process in place to do it, but we wound up doing a book with the movie in it 
and albeit it was like a $250 book. Uh, but when you open the book and press a button, the movie starts playing. You can read the whole story about Destino in, in the book, but then wow. you, you get to see the movie right there. I mean, this is so amazing. Like it would be such a, such a great coffee table book. I mean, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I sit there and, you know, this was this was the product of just sitting at my desk, writing a book and saying, I want to put a movie in the book and creating it. So even though it hadn't been done before, even though people were skeptical and they're like, eh, I don't get it or I don't think that's going to work or, you know, we did it and it was hugely successful. It was a limited run book with the movie in it uh, and it sold. And so I sit there and say, anybody who says no to you. Yeah. Look, there, there's absolutely crazy ideas uh, that aren't going to work, but if you really have your heart set on doing something that you think is going to work, this is how new products are designed. This is our, how people pitch new ideas. And it, it you know, it's, it's always going to be the situation where wouldn't it be great if somebody invented X? Wouldn't it be great if somebody created how many times? Yeah, I felt that, that about the iPod. I felt that about the iPod when yeah. I was like 12. <laughs> yeah. Back in, in the and, 90s. And, and, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's one of those things where, you know, you, you sit there and say, oh, you know, it'd be really great if somebody created X, Y, or Z. Well, why not you be the person that creates X, Y, or Z? You know, because you just had that idea. Now follow through on it. And that's really what people have to do is you can't you can't wish for you can't say someday I will. You you have to just go do it. Uh, and that's all I would leave your audience with is, you know, get up every day, be excited about what you're doing and follow through on those things you want to do. I mean, that is such a powerful way to end our conversation. Uh, David, you should consider doing a motivational book. <laughs> <laughs> but by the way, I, I, I have one written. Uh, oh, you do? I, I have one written that, that deals with my process of doing a personal retreat every year. Uh, and I'm refining that and reworking it. But eventually that's going to come out because I've already written a rough draft of it. Now I have to go back in and rewrite it, uh, which is part of my process and refine it. And, you know, that, that, that'll come out in the next year or two or whatever. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you should, you have a treasure trove of experience and, and knowledge and that I'm sure so many people will benefit from. So looking forward to that, to that book. Yeah. And, and you know, listen, Nike has it as their uh, logo. Just do it. Just do it. And that's, and that's really, you know, it, that's it's so powerful because, you know, again, just go do it. Don't wish. Yeah. Don't think you're going to do it some someday. Make today the day. Just go do it. And how do you deal with limitations, like resources and things? I think because that's, you know, people have those limitations that like rear its head up, like when they think about the possibilities. I mean, I know, yeah, I know that happens to me, like. Where, where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. You know, when I, uh, when I did my Kem Weber mid-century furniture designs for the Disney studios, that book was the first book. When I pitched it, I got told basically no, that it was too niche of a topic and they wouldn't sell enough books. And I said, eh, I'm going to go do it myself. I decided I was going to do it anyway. And what I did was I crowdfunded uh, a portion of the book, meaning that I wanted to do the book as good as any publisher could put it out there. Uh, and in order to do that, I had to learn about the process. And I wanted to make sure that there was going to be enough people who would buy the book. So I crowdfunded it by saying, do you want to reserve a copy of this book that's not written yet? And, and that was the first time I did a crowdfunding uh, for a book project, and it was hugely successful. 
and uh, and I completed the book. Yeah, yeah that's a great strategy. But 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 there there's there's a lot of uh, ways to overcome those obstacles that you know you just have to think about it. When somebody says, "Well, I I want to do this, but I don't I don't have the resources. I don't have the money. I don't have this." Well, all of those things you can figure a way around. Uh, and you could go figure out how to do it. And in the process, you're learning, you know, you're learning how to do these things. You know, I had, I had written a bunch of books and they were published, but I didn't really know how to create a book, like publish the book, have it printed and all of those things. I learned all of that stuff. All of this stuff is available to people. You just have to go look and find the information and figure it out. Uh, and, and there's really not a lot in the way of obstacles. Now, look, if somebody out there says, well, I want to create a brand new car. Well, the barrier to entry of creating a brand new car is very high. You need, you know, tens of, unless you're Elon Musk, you you need hundreds of millions of dollars to do it. And by the way, Elon Musk was very successful because he had started, he was one of the guys that started PayPal. Uh, early on. And so he made millions of dollars and he had a track record so he could turn around and invest some of his wealth into creating Tesla. And because of his past success, people were willing to put money up to to be investors early on and and make that happen. Well, you you know, you have to figure out how you are going to go about you know, uh, creating whatever it is you want to create. Yeah. Start uh, somewhere. You, you have to start someplace, but if you, if you start with, I want to create a new car, well, you, you have to realize the barrier of entry to that world is yeah. hugely expensive and very high. And, you know, the, you, you may not be able to do it if you have no track record, but if you want to learn how to paint or if you want to, you know, write a book, there is ways for you to do those things that are completely accessible to you that are available. I mean, there, there's so many free resources online. I mean, you can learn how to paint just by watching YouTube videos. That's true. Uh, and there's and an they have awful- websites like Skillshare. I'm not getting paid for this, but you know, yeah, they have websites but, like that. But, yeah. but there, there's so many different um, yeah. uh, online resources that are either yeah. free or uh, cost a small amount that uh, will allow you to, you know, learn whatever it is you want to do. Well, David, I, I mean, I don't know about everyone else listening, but I'm super inspired <laughs> talking to you. Thank you so much, David. It's just been, I mean, we could really, we could talk all day. Um, you know, it was ab- <laughs> it's absolutely my pleasure. And I really appreciate you having me on Dreamcatcher. Uh, yeah. I, I really had a, a wonderful time talking with you. And uh, uh, the, the one thing I would say uh, to people is that, you know, uh, if you want to find out more about my books. I have a lot of free articles and whatnot on my website, davidbosser.com. I'm sure you'll put that in your show notes. I will. I will. Uh, davidbosser.com. Uh, there's um, there's about 60 articles up on uh, on various aspects of animation and movies and uh, super Disney. interesting. I had a chance to yeah. read some of them. Definitely recommend yeah. checking and, them out. And, and that's all for people to to uh, read and enjoy. Uh, and uh, I would just say, uh, you know, go out and make a difference. Do it. Just do it. You know, just do, do it. Follow your passion. Absolutely. All right, David. Um, thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. It was great talking with you. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.